Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. When we lived up in Grand Prairie, a local foundation would host an annual Dream Home Lottery. And it was exciting. Each year, the builders would basically try to outdo the last year in making a home that was more extravagant, more exciting, uh, more unique than the one before. Their goal was to wow the crowds, and we would dutifully walk through with our mouths open, marveling at this magnificent palace and wondering what it would like to be living in a place like this. It was exciting. Uh, We would look around at the crowds and wonder, who among us is going to win that raffle ticket? Who's going to get to move in? Who's going to get to trade up from their lowly hovel to this lovely castle? Of course, you had to actually buy a ticket, which we actually never did. But, you know, the point went that way. And we would all enjoy this beautiful dream home. Now, that happens every year. And and people love to get in on it, but maybe you're the kind of person who's taken steps to build your own dream home, where you've got blueprints and plans and sketches, and you've loved to talk about it with a family member or a spouse to dream about the day that you could build your dream home. Maybe you already have. (laughs) Maybe there's others of us that it's not so much the aesthetic appeal, you know, the shape of the walls or how it all goes, but you've had a dream of a home that is more about a place where friends and family could gather. It didn't matter so much what it looked like. What mattered to you was that the the walls would be filled with laughter rippling among people who've gathered. There'd be welcome and grace and solace for all who enter. A a dream of a home that's more about the, the smell, even the taste of it. And then, of course, there's probably many of us where our hopes for a dream home are even more modest than that. We simply long for a home that's safe, that's whole, that's ours. Maybe with room for a garden and a few chickens. But have you ever considered this? That God himself has a dream home plan? A a home and a place that he wants to come and live in? that he wants to build a perfect, extravagant, beautiful, exquisite location that is befitting who God is and would reveal what God cares most about. Have you ever thought that God is building himself a dream home? This might be a weird idea to you. Or maybe it's something you've seen because you've sort of uh, skipped along and discovered the blueprints along the way. You've had an opportunity to see what God is up to. Well, today I invite you to come and take a peek over God's shoulder. And let's wonder together at God's dream home plans to see what this tells us about God, about ourselves, and about the story in which we play a part. We're continuing our teaching series through the big story of Scripture, letting God's story activate us into the story, activate our imaginations, activate our lives. You see, what we discover very quickly in the story is that 
God gave us this big book of this big collection of letters and prophecies and histories and gospels in order to reveal himself to us and to invite us into his plan for the world. God doesn't actually want us to just be passive spectators in what he's doing. He doesn't even want us to be satisfied consumers. That's not where his interest is. God wants people who are engaged, with eyes wide open, with a posture at the ready, our boots laced up, and our hands ready for the work of creation. God wants us to participate in his unfolding plan for the world. It's an incredible honor that God gives us, isn't it? He gives us tremendous dignity by inviting us into his plan. And so friends, knowing and internalizing, even coming to stand under this story, letting it shape our hearts and our minds and our imaginations and our actions, that's how God activates us. I'm so glad we're part of this together. Well, where are we at today? We're still in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. God has rescued his people out of Egypt and now has met his people at a great mountain, Mount Sinai, where he has established his covenant with them. Yahweh, their deliverer, is their God, and they are his people. But God has a dream, specifically a dream home. God, we discover, wants to live among his people. In fact, God is so committed to this dream that he then goes on in great detail to describe a special dwelling place so that his people are, are going to make, they're going to construct, in order for God to come and dwell among them. So in the back half of Exodus, after Mount Sinai, or they're still at Mount Sinai, but after the giving of the initial law, we find a lot of construction instruction for God's first mobile home. The kind of materials to use, the kind of furniture they're to make, um, how everything is to be arranged, and the way even the priests need to be dressed and consecrated in order to serve in this tabernacle, and how it's all going to work together as a way of mediating the presence of God to his people and enabling his people's response back to himself. If you haven't already, I encourage you to read through the last half of Exodus, to read through these instructions even this week so you can get a sense of how much care and concern God puts into the construction of this special tent. I know, when you read through it, it might seem a little tedious because, well, there's a lot of detail. But think of it this way. It's kind of tedious just like it would be if you were to hear anyone go over all of their carefully considered blueprints and plans for the dream home that they're longing to build. Every curtain, every alcove, right where this built-in bookcase is going to go, every wall or step or curve, all of that planned with care and precision. And these chapters here in Exodus show us just that. So hear it like that. God is pursuing his dream to live among his people. In fact, that's been God's plan all along. Yahweh makes that really clear, right in the middle of all the details that are being given. Yahweh says this in Exodus 29. He says, 
So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So let me get this straight. God is saying here that the purpose for which he rescued Israel out of slavery was so that he might dwell among them? Did you catch that? This is huge, friends, because this is one of the moments in the biblical story where God reveals something of his motivation, something of his intention. And we want to hear that really clearly. God saved his people so he could live among his people. Salvation of the humans was for communion with the humans. This tells us so much about God, doesn't it? His relational character, his intended goals for all of his creation, his desire for a responsive people who are able to live in covenant with him. You know, and what we've seen so far, it's, it's not just that God is being nice or being kind or even having pity on oppressed people. That's all true in its own way. But it's so much more than that. God's got a bigger plan. He's going to come and live with them. In this, we get a clue to the meaning of the whole unfolding story as we read it. In fact, we get a clue right here to the meaning of the whole universe. God's plan, beginning with creation and then pursued relentlessly through history, is that he would enjoy friendship, fellowship, communion, union with his good creation. God's got a dream home plan. And it's us. We'll see a bit more of this in the rest of of the story. But before we go on, let me ask you, how does God's dream home plan to come and live among his people in his creation, how does that influence how we understand and engage this whole story? Think about that. If it's all for the purpose of of God's dwelling place, then somehow everything that happens in this story Everything that happens in our story will be connected to God's desire to dwell among us. It'll be connected to the renewal of a people and a place where God can enjoy meaningful relationships with his human images. Remember that as you're reading. Remember that when you wake up in the morning. That's God's desire. But, of course there is a problem. That might be God's desire, but he's working with, well, people. Frail, sinful, mistrusting and untrustworthy, selfish, idolatrous, and very impatient people. People that are, well, an awful lot like you and I. And so the story of Exodus reminds us just how tough this is going to be. You see, the back half of Exodus 20 to 40, 
divides fairly neatly into three sections. First, God gives Moses detailed blueprints about this tabernacle. And it is a lot of detail. But then, in the second part, right while God and Moses are up on the mountain pouring over the plans, the kids down below, at the bottom of the mountain, they get cranky. They get impatient. And they immediately rebel against the covenant that God just made with them. They turn to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they demand that he actually make some golden calves so they have a God they can see and a God they can worship, which he then does, and they bow down and worship these golden calves as the very gods who had in fact delivered them out of Egypt. So not only do they break the first couple commands of the covenant God gave them, but then they have the gall to attribute their very salvation out of Egypt to these idols, which they had just made from the jewelry they took off their ears. It's a dark moment. And it leads to a dramatic exchange between Moses and God, where Moses has to actually talk God down from simply wiping them all out so he can start over. It's epic. And it underscores the tension between God's dream to live among his people and the reality that these people are not fit for his plans. How does a holy God live among unholy people? You'd think it wasn't possible. But actually, that's not where the story goes. When it's all said and done, and that's the third part of the story, Moses and the people do make this special tent according to the instructions that God has given them, and God does come to live among them, reminding us right there that God's grace really is greater than all of our sin. God is, in fact, so holy that he can move among us even when we're not ready for him. Most of the tabernacle's series of inner and outer rooms and all the many worship rituals that surrounded it served to communicate to the community that God really was holy and that he was among an unholy people, but we must not miss the fact that God did, in some sense at least, come to dwell among his people. When Moses put all these meticulously created items of furniture within this carefully constructed tent, God visibly shows up. Listen to the very final words of the book of Exodus. Then the cloud, that's the cloud that's been... Uh, leading the children of Israel so far. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. God saved his people so that he might dwell among his people, and now he does. The story of God's people from there on, in some ways, can be chronicled as a story of God's presence with a lot of tension between God's presence among a very often very unholy people. Many years later, when King Solomon built Yahweh a more permanent home, a temple instead of a tabernacle, 
God warned Solomon that his presence among them in this temple was contingent upon their covenant faithfulness. In 1 Kings 9.3, this is the word that God gives to Solomon. He says, I've heard the prayer and the plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple, which you have built, by putting my name there forever. But then God goes on and says, But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. And sure enough, it's exactly what Solomon, who is known as being so wise and yet was so, so foolish, it's exactly what he did. He went off and worshipped other gods. And while God waited and warned, and then waited and warned some more, eventually, centuries later, God did allow foreign powers to sack and destroy this temple and to haul his people away into exile. It was another dark day in the story of God's people. Another dark day in the construction of God's dream home, which was apparently now in shambles. Would God ever return to his people? Would he ever return his people to the land? Would God ever live among his people like he desired? Those are the questions pondered by many. And through a series of post-exilic prophets, these were sent by God to encourage the people who had already been taken away from the land. Through those prophets, God reaffirmed his plans to dwell among them, to restore his people again, and to come to them in a special way, in a special tent, to be among them as their God. But no one really saw it coming the way it did. Because instead of a physical brick-and-mortar temple, I mean, another one had been rebuilt, but God never showed up in that temple again the way he had in the previous one. So instead of a physical brick-and-mortar temple, God shows up in a flesh-and-blood body. To be clear, though, this is still a continuation of God's desire to dwell among his people, for his people to see and to know that he is among them. And the Apostle John, in the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth gospel, he makes this really clear right at the beginning of his gospel. Listen to this, because it echoes God's original desire to dwell among his people. John starts his whole book by saying, in the beginning was the word, and he wants to echo the Genesis story of creation here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then, skipping down a little bit, John then tells us who this word is. In verse 14, the word, that's the word that was with God and was God and created the whole world, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Do you hear the echoes there? John wants us to hear it. He even uses the same word that is used for tabernacle, that the word in that sense tabernacles among us, makes his dwelling here. And then 
again, alluding to the Exodus passage, the glory of God is seen through him. He gets more explicit when he says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Did you hear that? The very creator of the world became the dwelling place of God among us. John wants us to see how all of this, the consecration of the tabernacle, the consecration of the first temple, that now in Jesus, God has come to dwell among his people. So that when people see Jesus, they see God present among them. There's a lot for us to reflect upon, to praise and worship God for, when we think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God would become a human being, one of his own creation, a fully human person, to live among his people so that he might mediate for us this relationship, this covenant. It's amazing. And more than that, after centuries and centuries of failure, Jesus comes to represent Israel back to God, to be the perfect Israelite, to be fully faithful to the covenant that God had made with Israel, and to fulfill that covenant on behalf of Israel. And then, in a shocking display of grace and power, to then turn around and take upon himself the covenant unfaithfulness of Israel, to take upon himself the sin and rebellion of all creation and go to the cross on behalf of us all? It's amazing. It's why in John's gospel, the glory, the glorification of Jesus and of the Father is seen most clearly through the cross. Why is that? Well, for the same reason that Yahweh rescued his people out of Egypt in the first place so that he might dwell among us, so that he might come and live in us. Jesus, fully God and fully man, the very tabernacle of God among us, after rising from the dead, told his people that God's spirit was going to come and live among them all, live in them all. A promise that was first fulfilled at Pentecost and then has been fulfilled again and again and again as God comes to live in his people down through history. Can you see the way that God is pursuing his dream home plan? He rescued Israel so that he could live among them. And after many years of faithfulness and faithlessness on their part, God comes himself as one of us in the person of Christ to be for Israel what they failed to be. And why? So he could come into us all by the Holy Spirit so that he can continue his plans for his dream home. Talk about a way maker and a promise keeper. Talk about the reckless love of God. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this, of where we're at in this story of God's dream home. In Ephesians chapter 2, after setting everything up and talking about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, reminding us that this reconciliation that God has made with us is also this reconciliation that he's made between us and others. We talked about that last week with respect to racial injustice and racial reconciliation. At the end of that, Paul concludes chapter 2 with this. He says, Consequently, you, and he's referring to those of us who were Gentiles, who were far away and outside the covenant, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizen 
with God's people, and also members of his household. And then, here in verse 20, Paul switches to a building metaphor when he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, that is in Christ, the whole building is joined together and becomes and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, I know if you've been around church circles much, we can hear it so much that it can become a bit commonplace. The fact that we, as God's people, are living temples. But really, that's mind-boggling. That God lives here? In me? In us? Among us? In this frail, sinful, ordinary life? In our broken, confused, stumbling community? I mean, could it be that God saved us so that he might dwell among us? That our salvation was for the sake of communion with God too? Yeah, that's exactly what this means. That's exactly how the story rolls out. And by the Holy Spirit, God is still at work, making us more and more and more of a palace, befitting a king. This leads us directly into application, doesn't it? Because if God's desire, consistently pursued over generations, over millennia, is to be among his people, to live in us, which is being fulfilled now by his Holy Spirit, how are we to respond? Well, first, we've got to let him take the lead in this building project. Now, I know a few home builders. I might be related to a few as well. And I can tell you on good authority that one of the more difficult ways of building is to build a custom home for somebody, particularly when the owner of that custom home doesn't trust the builder. Constantly questioning the way it's done, always wanting to change things halfway through, never quite satisfied or confident that the plans that have been made are good and we should follow through with them. And you know, fine, if you hired someone and you got the money to go, you know, I guess go ahead and be that difficult homeowner. But here's the thing, the home that God's building, it's actually his home. He's both the owner and the builder of this home that we are stewards of, that we are part of, that we have been welcomed into. And so we've got to trust his building skills. We've got to let him lead the project, which is hard to do sometimes when we aren't sure why he's doing this or why he's changing that or what's going on in our lives. C.S. Lewis, in his helpful little book, Mere Christianity, he helps us embrace God's building plans when he says this, and I quote, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the floor and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building 
quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God's got a dream home planned, and he's building it in us as his whole church, and in us as his individual children. So let him take the lead. What does that mean? Well, it means we need to trust his good plans for us. Even when it's difficult to see how God will make a palace from what's happening around you. Trust his plans for your formation. Trust his plans for the church. Trust him in those places where we're being called to respond and we don't fully understand, or it's scary, or it rubs. Trust his good plans because he's building a palace. Second application for us is that we can give grace to each other in this construction phase. Construction sites are often very messy, aren't they? Renovations take time. Sometimes you tear down a wall or you uncover something and you realize, oh, we've got to go even deeper than we thought. Remembering what God is up to in us helps give us grace, gives, help us, helps us give grace to each other in the process. We can trust the Holy Spirit's at work in others too, that God already lives there and he's working to make us a home that is more his style, more befitting his good character. And so let's be patient with each other, especially as he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make sense because when we see that happening in other people's lives, we can be patient, even show kindness because it's tough for them, just like it's tough for us, to show grace and patience with each other as we trust the Spirit's construction of us. Because the truth is, the project isn't done. Yes, God's Spirit has come. Really and truly, God lives in us now. And yet we're told that the Spirit has come as a kind of down payment of a much fuller reality that's coming. And what's that more that's coming? Well, we have to turn to the very end of the story to see it all unfold because there we're given a picture of God's final homecoming, arriving in his final dream home. In Revelation 21, the second last chapter of the Bible, John, the apostle, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Did you hear that at the end of the story? It's like there's a big sigh from the heart of God. He's finally home. 
God's dwelling places, now among the people, and he will dwell with them just as he always wanted to do. They will be his people, and God will be with them and be their God just as he always wanted to be. In Exodus, God said that he rescued his people so that he could dwell among them. Turns out, that's why he rescued all of us. That's why he rescued all of creation, so that he could dwell with us. That God's dream home project, the project he's so committed to, that he would become part of the project itself, become one of us, a human being, and then come by the Holy Spirit, overcoming our sin and shame to make us a palace fit for himself, fit for a king. That's a project he's still pursuing even today, even now. And he's going to keep pursuing that dream until the day when heaven and earth are joined, when all sorrow and all pain is gone, when the full communion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is shared with all of his human images in the good creation, when everything is complete, perfect, good, and new. Well, let that hope fill you today, fill your heart, your mind, and your imagination as we trust his renovating work in us and among us. As you go today, may the God of hope fill you with his imagination, reassuring you of his grace to build in us a palace of his dreams, to shape in us and among us a dwelling place for himself. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey. Whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.